the Empire Podcast. This week, we go smeg and nuts for the return of Red Dwarf with Craig Charles and Chris Barry. David Thompson, doyen of film writers, drops in to show us prehistoric bitches how he does things downtown. And we have all the week's film news and reviews for you to peruse while listening to Muse. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the Empire Podcast, the only movie podcast that steps straight off a plane from LA and yet feels absolutely... Hey, whoa, hey, as ever, I'm joined by three of my esteemed colleagues at Empire Towers. Thanks for that, Phil. Uh, all of whom are hopefully more awake than I am. Helen O'Hara is still missing in action. She was last seen heading to Vegas, muttering darkly about staking an entire year's salary on the spin of roulette wheel. That's £20, if you're asking. Um, so while she's away, doing his best to effect an approximation of her soothing Gloria Honeyford-esque tones, is a man described by Lister off of Red Dwarf as looking like that bloke from Jethro Tull. It's Ali Plum. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm well. I don't know who the Jeff Plum Tull guy is. Who is that? Who is that? Uh, he he essentially is a guy with curly hair, and I have curly hair, and you know <laughs> Craig Charles is a curliest, and I just have to, <laughs> he's a curlist. I have to just take that bullshit every day in the street. Where's your flute? All that stuff, all the time. Really, constantly. Almost constantly. Next up, we have a man who tells me privately that he's annoyed at being pigeonholed as someone who's only into obscure art house flicks. He lives and breathes blockbusters and big commercial fare like the rest of us. Conversely, though, he's also possibly the only person on the planet to have uttered the immortal words, Oh good, my Abbas Kiriostami box set has arrived. It gives you great pleasure to <laughs> to welcome Phil Dissemble. And you actually said those words. Oh good, my Aki Kurzmaki box oh, set Aki has arrived. Oh, Aki Kurzmaki. Massive racist. I'm always getting those, t- I'm always getting those two mixed up. Well, what's, the, what's, the, what's the difference between Well, one's Finnish and one's Iranian. But apart from that, <laughs> it's, it's, they're all the same. Japanese. They're all the same. Both, so it's like taking two in here they're all foreign <laughs> kill him <laughs> AK, I, just saw, I just saw the initials AK and just assumed it was Alex Kirstami <laughs> or Anna Krenner it would be Indeed. nice if he named his production company like AK-47 or it something. would be but no I don't think he did that there's <laughs> still time there is still there time there is still time uh, last but not least or third but not third is a man who's seen things you people would not believe Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. Sea beams glittering in the dark near the Tannhauser Gate. Tom Hardy having a crap. All these moments are lost in time, but thankfully James Dyer isn't. You're going to have to explain what I just said. I, I, I really don't think this is a time or the place for me to uh, <laughs> recount the Tom Hardy story. Suffice it to say, it's true. Um, <laughs> yeah. Chris, I must say, you, you do look absolutely dreadful. You look <laughs> shattered. You. Is it, you've just come off a plane. Think, this is right. Yeah, yeah. I'm wearing a... I'm wearing a uh, Team GB baseball cap and you're all blurry <laughs> and there's six of you in this room right now this is from the Empire Party in LA yeah this is from uh, I was over there doing a uh, Fiddy Bloggy Soda oh how I miss the Fiddy Bloggy and I was doing my first Fiddy Bloggy for a long long time um, over at the uh, launch party of the US iPad edition of Empire sponsored by Netflix and it was fantastic we had a load of, of great A-list directors come out and support us because they love us and uh, people like Ryan Johnson and Jason Reitman and Michael Bay and Brett Ratner and David Fincher and uh, other people like that. Jeremy Renner was there. Uh, Drew Pierce, the writer of Iron Man Three, was there. I'm trying to remember some other people. It was it was a a, a good party, and I've already forgotten most that, of it. That uh, that werewolf, what Helen fancies off True Blood, was there. That's right, Joe Manganiello. Yeah, he's an impressive specimen in the flesh. If Ellen were here, she'd be going, ooh. And Walton Goggins, I was very, very Walton Goggins, yeah, thank you for yeah. that. Joe Carnahan was there as well. Uh, Alan Hughes was there without Albert. I'm, I'm beginning to worry about those two. Because they were together for so long, and now they're directing apart, and <laughs> Alan was at the party, but Albert wasn't. 
Mm. <sighs> I hope they haven't. Mm. I hope they haven't fallen out. Like is, you know, like you and Nick, Phil. Who? Ah, uh, see. Is it true that David Fincher turned up five minutes from the end and then asked everyone to do the party again 27 times? <laughs> 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 the first part is true. Sadly, the second part is not. Oh, you still be there, wouldn't you? It ain't no party without a Fincher there. That's that's for sure. But it was great. It was great fun though, and uh, I, I learned some valuable lessons when I was over there. Not not just at the party, but I learned that Louis. The uh, sitcom starring Louis C.K. is fantastic because when you go over to the States, the IP address switches. So if you're subscribing to Netflix here, you get Netflix US over there, mm. and it's great. So I suddenly had every episode of Louis, and I just watched quite a lot. It's fantastic. Secondly, if you're wearing a geek T-shirt, and you know I like to wear geek T-shirts, don't wear one if you don't have the knowledge to back it up. <laughs> so I have a, I, I saw a Comic-Con this year, a T-shirt I just had to have, which was the TARDIS turning into a Transformer. It was, it was TARDIS Prime if you will so I had to have it because it was just really really cool t-shirt I don't really like Doctor Who I don't really know anything about Doctor Who and I was in Gap and the, the cashier went hey dude nice shirt and I went oh thanks very much indeed he went yeah you must be really upset about the pond leaving huh <laughs> I go the what the who the what the, uh, yes I'm terribly British bye and I just could not pack it up right now I'm wearing a Dirty Harry t-shirt and I know my Dirty Harry so perfect yeah so it's all good Paul Newman it's also quite dirty what's that I said it's also quite dirty because you just got off a blank it is literally dirty and I am very Harry uh, okay right <laughs> right <laughs> on to our readers questions now um, nearly said readers wives that's different podcast um, okay at galv2809 asks best and longest multi-film streak by director uh, I think he means consecutive films not, he doesn't mean not without running, dying or running naked on the film set I don't think he means that either galv would go hitch very informal 58 to 63 vertigo north by northwest psycho birds thoughts James has no thoughts at the moment. No, I, have, I, I, have, just, I, have I just no pointed thoughts. at James. He looked completely uh, absolutely no blank. thoughts whatsoever. Ali, I have big thoughts. Uh, <laughs> my big thoughts. You ready for them? Yeah, squeeze them uh, out. My big thoughts uh, start with Spielberg, Jaws in 1975, and then you had Close Encounters, then Raiders, then ET. That's not bad. That's all right. But he had 1941 in that run as well. Oh, so I'm saying yeah, that's right. You're talking about consecutive. I wrote a blog, mm, yeah. something like this, a, few, a couple of years ago. John McTiernan is a really good example. I've got him down here, yeah. Because from 1987 to 1990, he did. Uh, he started off a Predator. Then the very next year, he made Die Hard. So he made two of the greatest action movies of all time in two years, and then made The Hunt for Red October after that. Uh, and that's not a bad little little run. I think I always say something like John Carpenter for this one. Because John Carpenter went, and if you, if you don't, you can you can include Elvis the, the movie, which was made for TV in 1979 as well. But if you want, he went Dark Star, Assault and Precinct 13, Halloween, The Fog, Escape from New York, uh, and, and Into the Thing across a period of about eight years. That's a phenomenal achievement. Are we talking in terms of actual number of films or quality? Decades. Quality. Decades, because I'm saying James Cameron. Consecutively, it worked over He's time. Right, yeah. Over time, if you're taking actual, you know, in terms of year span, that's, yeah. that's a pretty good run. This is a really good question. I think you I could get properly scientific, which we're not going to do because we're not uh, science. What about Kurosaki or Kurosaki? I was going to say, uh, say, Chris, if you mention Kurosaki in this, <laughs> there's going to be some kind of paper. I'm coming in next week with a Kurosaki T-shirt. No. <laughs> You've what, got t- one, turning you? into a TARDIS, or <laughs> haven't you? You've got a clever Bergman T-shirt, haven't you? That's I do. Kind of, yeah, I do. What is that? What's happened on that one? It's, you know, it's one of those t-shirts with the... Um, disrespectful. With, it's not disrespectful. It's got it's got uh, film director's names uh, transposed into the logos of, of 80s rock 80s bands. Rock bands. Mm, yeah. So the Scorpions is Scorsese and Van Halen is Von Trier and so on and so forth. 
Anyway, uh, Howard Hawks. I've got here to have and have not the big sleep in Red River. That's a, that's a threesome. Um, you could argue that Hitch you could extend into ni- it's nineteen sixty four and Marnie at the end of that run. You could yes. A lot of people would say that's top tier Hitchcock. Um, Powell and Pressburg when Matter of Life and Death, Black Narcissus, Red Shoes. Then a lesser film, then Tales of Hoffman. <laughs> it's a lesser <laughs> film. Yeah, that's the, I know, yeah. I know. But and all of Billy Wilder's career. But obviously, one or two, there was one or two that weren't quite as good as the rest. But I think a director having a purple patch right now before our very eyes is uh, Paul Thomas Anderson is having one. He is, yeah. Um, uh, he, in my mind, hasn't made a Duff movie uh, so far. Uh, if you know, going back to Boogie Nights, including Hard Eight. Uh, okay. Um, <laughs> it, it, it doesn't. You can start off. You can have Duff ones in. That's there, what I think. I'm, you know. Yeah. So it, you have to pick your your, your start off point. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think Woody Allen also had a great spot around about Annie Hall. Yeah, no, I agree. I think this is a fantastic question. We could be here all year, frankly. But Galf, I uh, hope that helped you out a little bit. At Richard Bud forty one asks, which film is most rewarding viewing for you the uh, second and third time round? For me, it's The Prestige. Each time, I notice new tiny details. So I guess it is movies like this and Usual Suspects where mm-hmm. there's a twist. Or, I always like to watch films like this a second time around and watch the performance of the person who, uh, uh, around whom the twist revolves. So Kevin Costner in No Way Out. And you, 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 know, you look at the little modulations in the performance. I often like to, uh, like to ask actors if they do you know, kind of build their performance for a second viewing. Mm-hmm. Most of the time they go no, but uh, it is quite interesting. If you're specifically talking things that you pick up on a second view, and then yeah, absolutely right, it's films like Memento stuff where stuff where there's a revelation at the end which essentially rewrites the narrative up until that point. I think those are the ones that do it. But equally, I think repeat viewings. Uh, I, do you know what? For me, for completely different, it would be something like Die Hard. It's one where it fosters affection, and every time you watch it, it's like going to the pub with an old friend. I say those are the most fulfilling. And you begin to spot films. things watching Die Hard again. I mean, you begin to spot things like, for example, one of the characters in it is played by the same actor who appears in Die Hard 3 but it's a different character an actor called Anthony Peck who sadly since passed away is young cop in Die Hard and then he shows up in Die Hard with a vengeance a slightly older cop as, as the guy uh, whose badge number who gives Bruce Willis a, mm. his badge number the lottery number and then you know that's how you know John McClane knows that the bad guys are up to no good later on and he often pops up in other McTiernan films as well um, but you just spot him you go hang on that guy looks familiar and you look at him and go oh he's he's in two diehard films but playing different characters in both which is really really weird I would pick just really big films uh, like Lawrence Relay uh, like, like <laughs> Lawrence Relay <laughs> <Lawrence Lawrence Lawrence. laughs> that's that other podcast hey 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 yeah. I, I have rewatched that film plenty of times as well but yeah just big proper old school epics it, it, partially because you know you can't absorb it all in one or two or three viewings so just absorbing epic three-hour movies, movies like Citizen Kane where you do have to go and stretch your legs an hour and a half the way through. Um, Those movies. Yeah, okay, fair enough. I love movies like Top Secret or Naked Gun, movies that are just Mm. filled with side gags and filled with stuff that you just don't see You know, the first time around, you maybe catch little jokes. We were talking about this the other day, Airplane and Naked Gun. Huge amounts of rewatch value. Yeah, lots of that in the Pixar films, obviously, and Odd Man. You know, rich yeah. with rich with mm. Easter eggy things that you just kind of throw so much stuff at you can't. You know, but that, that a lot of filmmakers use the whole frame, and you can't absorb it all at the same time. You know, when they study where where the eye looks and it's drawn to, you maybe look at one place and then you watch the film, you're seeing a whole you know different side of the frame that you haven't noticed. So you know, you get a lot out of films the more you watch them. Yeah. Um, 
but you're right. There's different reasons for rewatching films. Some are just like Singing in the Rain or Raiders or a Predator or Die Hard. Those films you just can watch any time. And there's some films that you've got to watch because you have absolutely no idea what they're about. <laughs> <laughs> like anything by Tarkovsky. At Danger underscore Andy asks, what films were you banned from watching as a child? Mum forbade me from seeing Child's Play 3. Still haven't seen it. She did you a favour. She did, and but I presume that that's coming off the back of that, that furore it, it, over it was, the it Jamie was three, wasn't it, that was pulled? It was three. Because it was, was due to air, as I recall, on one of the Sky movie channels the day after it happened, and they did pull it. I, I do remember, I had actually planned to watch it. Oh, really? Yeah. Again, you haven't missed much. Uh, I well, haven't remembered that child's play, Farago, so that question to mm. me seemed like... The parents, mum had said, fine, Charles play one and two, but the <laughs> franchise is starting to sort of fizzle out here and you're wasting your time with well, Charles Yeah, no, she was, it was a, a critical thing. Well, she probably didn't need to ban him because it was, it was pulled from pretty much all media it, in the, the UK. Charles Play 3 yeah. was actually pulled. Because uh, it's the doll on the train track and it was all a bit, you know. Yeah, yeah. And some people alleged that it inspired a bit neat. That's right, yeah. My parents weren't racing out to show me Clockwork Orange when I was, <laughs> when I was a kid to be honest but yeah they did show I don't think they were that they used that much discretion when they went to the local video shop when they had a night out they would just bring back kind of hardcore kung fu movies thank god you finished that sentence yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hardcore otherwise I thought we were going back hardcore, to Lawrence of Arabia well, I haven't finished hardcore kung fu movies hardcore horror movies hardcore well. horror movies as well okay yeah. okay. Yeah, my parents were incredibly permissive uh, mainly because they didn't know any better frankly so but you know I was watching Commando on video I was watching Aliens and, and movies like that mm. and, and look uh, where you are now look where I am now half psychotic and deranged See, weirdly my <laughs> mum didn't understand the BBFC rating system so she would let me have 18s but she wouldn't let me have PGs because she thought parental guidance seemed a bit strict and oh no can't have some parental guidance so what did she think 18 meant you know you had what? to watch it 18 I times you to... I do remember that despite that I once asked her to stay up because obviously I'd gone to bed at 7 or something I was about 3 years old and god knows um and record Private Benjamin for me. Don't ask me why. And uh, there's a bit where she shags her husband and he dies sort of mid-coitus. Right. Yeah. And she didn't want me seeing that. So during the advert, she rewound and recorded over that bit with a, like a Kentucky Fried Chicken advert. <laughs> and so I had this like <laughs> chunk of advert and then it... So for years you've just associated sex with chicken. That's right. And the colonel, you know. <laughs> and the colonel, yeah. Which frankly has had serious repercussions. Yeah, in order to perform you have to have an old man with a white beard standing <laughs> beside you with a, a secret, secret combination. And a box of popcorn chicken. Yeah. yeah. This conversation is taking This podcast has gone very, very strange. I have to yeah. apologise. I'm jet lagged. I don't know what these three's excuses are, <laughs> to be honest. But anyway, sexualising Zinger burgers. Yeah, I've got uh, I think Killer Joe did that anyway. <laughs> in truth, you're true. okay. Uh, okay. Uh, via email, Daniel Gaze asks uh, If any of you could time travel and interact with your younger past self, and this is inspired by Looper, I'm guessing, uh, what words of advice would you give or heed warning of milestones to avoid and no almanac like answers? Well, simply. Please don't shoot me in the head. Don't watch Attack of the Clones. Or if you do, give it four stars for the love of God. Or three. But don't give it five. Um, what would I do? I'd see that almanac. Like, I mean, obviously buy Apple stock, but that's an almanac answer. Uh, I wouldn't buy an Atari Lynx, is what I wouldn't do. Uh, instead of a Game Boy. I wouldn't that buy was a, a really bad purchase. I bought an HD DVD player. Yeah. Yes, I was going to say, that would be the thing. Blu-ray, not HD DVD. That would be the, if I could say one sentence, that would be it. Blu-ray, not HD DVD, and then I'd vanish. Or be <laughs> shot in the face, depending on, on the film. That's your greatest regret. Yeah. It is. Wow. <laughs> we're terribly middle, middle class. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The yeah. worst thing that's ever happened to me was buying an HD DVD player. I still use it occasionally. It. I still have a fairly decent collection of HD DVDs. It keeps the door open. It's, it's, yeah, it's a huge monolith. It just sits there and, you know, I expect it was just 
cribbed from the set of 2001 and just someone plugged it in. It's just absolutely horrible, but it it, it kind of works. Although it does take an eternity to warm up. That's why from that, it's perfect. It does, you have to pedal it. Yeah. <laughs> but apart from that, it's absolutely fine. You know, there was a day when, um, when those massive old TVs suddenly got replaced and everyone had flat screen TVs. Yes. I bought one of those massive old TVs the day before that day. Um, for a lot of money that I'd saved up and then within a year it was just ridiculous because you can't buy them anymore well why would you want to it weighed about a million kilos and uh, it was rubbish so one one could not really accuse you of being a futurist I did the exact same thing with the PlayStation 2 I bought a PlayStation 2 and I had a horrible birthday I was I just arrived in London I didn't really know anyone I went out with what little friends I had to a I didn't know any better an Angus Steakhouse oh (laughs) for my birthday it was one of the worst yeah it was one of the worst meals I ever had and so I resolved to buy myself a Playstation 2 as as a birthday present cheer myself up went in the game spent about 300 quid that I probably didn't have on a PlayStation 2 and then within three days it'd gone down price by about 100 quid so that was good thanks a lot anyway it's competition time last week we offered five readers the chance to win Moonrise Kingdom on Blu-ray the ridiculously easy question was what was Wes Anderson's first film as a director the answer was of course Bottle Rocket which he also made as a short and the winners are drumroll Graham Samuel Gibbon Asif Ahmad Mark Griffin Alex Griffiths and Jonathan Scammell or Scamell. congratulations to you all your prizes will be with you as soon as we receive them and then we'll dance around it for a bit and then we'll send them your way uh, this week you can win one of three Blu-ray copies of Will Ferrell's Spanish language movie Casa Dima Padre to stand a chance of winning it answer this week's ridiculously easy question ¿Quién es el director de El Reporto La Leyenda de Ron Burgundy? there you go bit of Spanish Google Translate <laughs> it was my friend Helen who can speak Spanish if she'd heard that she'd been rolling in her grave I mean her suite in Las Vegas did I say grave? I didn't mean grave anyway she'll be back next week I'm sure uh, as ever if you want to answer the question stand a chance of winning send a correct answer along with your name and postal address to podcast at emperoronline.com use the same email address to ask us anything you want or you can tweet us at at emperor magazine use the hashtag emperor podcast and you can facebook us too Pook us through a sheep at us go on do it you know you want to right we've been inundated with guests in the pod booth this week I turn my back for five minutes the place turns into a west end forest people arriving just as others leaving people with trousers around their ankles I imagine that sort of thing happened a few weeks ago we were asked about the film critics that we read or look up to the kind of people who wouldn't give Attack the Clones five stars Uh, David Thompson is a brilliant author of books like The New Biographical Dictionary of Film and Have You Seen which is resplendent on my bookshelf Uh, he was very high on that list and he popped in this week to talk about his new book The Big Screen The Story of the Movies and What They Did to Us he was speaking to Phil and Ian Freer we're very glad to have um David Thompson, the author of The Big Screen, The Story of the Movies and What They Did to Us, which is published by Alan Lane. David, thank you very much for coming in. Thank you for having me. First of all, I think a good place to start would be the history of the movies in 500 pages. This is an epic undertaking. How have you managed to condense it into into that? And, and, and how did you go about doing that? Well, by leaving a great deal out. <laughs> and... Um, I apologize for that in the book, and I apologize now. Um, You know, if you've lived through the history of the movies, you sort of remember every film. And I've taken 
a guess, a hunch, on what might be remembered 50 years from now. And that, that's an opinion. It, it, it's a judgment call. I've tried to pick out the films which seemed to me at the time they were made to be especially important and striking. Uh, and, but this is more than a history of the movies. It's, it's a history of moving imagery at least from Edward Mybridge, the photographer, still photographer, to an age of Facebook and YouTube. So it's more than the movies. It, it, it's, it's the entirety of moving imagery and the way we have um, looked at screens over that time. And it's yeah. also about how, how it's kind of shaped our lives, isn't it? How it's, it Absolutely. I, I, I have felt as I've grown older uh, that it's not really sufficient to say this film is better than that film and, and to go deeply into the uh, details of, of film production. I think one needs to see film, at least I have felt the need to see film in terms of the history of the world. Right. And I think that screens and what we use screens for now and the imagery on them is clearly vital to our state of culture and communication. And it's way beyond individual movies. I've seen some films in the last few years that I like very much. Uh, Profit by Audi Yard. Um, I, I love a film, a small English film called The Arbor, which hmm. yeah, we're yeah. going to show tomorrow night at the Barbican. Um, you know, there are, some, there are some wonderful films. I don't think I've seen anything that knocked me out. I was ready, really ready, to be knocked out by the master, Paul Thomas Anderson, which will open here, I think, in a few weeks' time. And uh, I loved the trailers for the film, and I thought, gosh, I can't wait to see this film. Well, <laughs> it was a big letdown uh, f for me. Uh, why do you uh, say that? Uh, I don't think it's about anything. I think it's, uh, I think it's uh, a pretentious film. I don't mind pretension always. Sometimes it can be very valuable because people are reaching for something. I don't think this film reaches for something. I just think it's, I think it sort of says, look, I'm Paul Thomas Anderson. I've got the money. Let me do it. And I don't think he had a clear enough idea in his head of what the movie could be. But that's my opinion. Because I also think that, that There Will Be Blood is something that has a chance of becoming something yes. that will join the canon in, yes. in times. Well, I've been a great admirer of Anderson until this film. And certainly There Will Be Blood seems to me a film that will be in contention. Do you think... Um, the reasons why people go to the cinema has changed. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, I was told uh, this week that a good seat in a major West End theatre uh, for a new film can be £20. Yeah. That's a reason for not going. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it is, incidentally, quite a lot more than you have to pay in America. You mentioned in the book Brian De Palma's Scarface being condensed into two minutes. Have you seen that? I haven't seen it. I'm going to, though. It, it's so good that you can hardly watch De Palma's film again afterwards. You said you can't revisit the film with a straight face. It, it, I mean, it just alters it. It, it. For me, it's rather like the way in that film, The Trip, when Steve Coogan and his partner did Michael Caine. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. we all know that. 
as soon as I saw that, I thought, I could never watch Michael Caine again. <laughs> He's finished in a way, you know what I mean? Uh, and I think that sort of thing is going to happen a great deal. Do you do a good Michael Caine, David? No, I do not. And I'm not going to be drawn into doing oh. a good Michael Caine. <laughs> um, you mentioned, again, another another quote from the book is you, you talk about it being, the book being, a, a love letter to a lost love affair. Yeah. And we we're wondering when that, when that love affair was at its most ardent. Can you, can you sort of pinpoint a time a young David Thompson was, was going to see films and really, really fell head over heels? Oh, I think it would be, for me, it would be in the 1950s. And although I now see faults in them, uh, movies like East of Eden, From Here to Eternity, not necessarily great movies, but movies that, for a young person, express so much about your hopes to, of growing up and leading an adult life. I think for the most people, the movies that had the biggest effect on them, most lasting effect, are movies they saw sort of between the ages of 8 and 18. Uh, I, I think that's when movies get you. Uh, now, I was going to go on to see lots of movies that at that age I could never have appreciated, like Godard say mm. and and they meant a lot to me but but you know I think if you if you're going to push me to the last <laughs> resort it's movies of the 1950s it's a, it's a stare and Charisse in silk stockings something like that you know yeah that kind of film we were wondering what it would have been like because you must have been in your sort of late teens about the time the French New Wave was I was at the perfect age yeah. when, when when the French New Wave dawned I was 19 and, and, and you know there could not have been a better moment it's so exciting yeah yeah, yeah. Belmondo for you Belmondo did you want to be did you aspire to be I wanted to be Belmondo I wanted to have Gene Seberg I wanted to have made the film I mean you know uh, the whole bag of tricks and I remember a a moment when Truffaut visited the National Film Theatre I think I think it was with Shoot the Pianist and I'd been going to the National Film Theatre for quite a long time uh, and there had been directors there and they'd all seemed to be very old men and here at last was someone who looked approximately like people of my age and it was a sort of revelation because in those days film seemed a totally inaccessible thing you wanted to make film but it was so dauntingly expensive and it was so hard to get a job in the business that you really didn't think it was possible now of course any kid for peanuts can make some kind of film and the French New Wave sort of started that because it was a whole new budgetary level which basically involved not paying people (laughs) and uh, and also new equipment lightweight cheaper equipment and yeah it was a heady moment it really was yeah what would we be surprised that you haven't seen that you haven't seen I don't think there's anything sort of major like that Um, the films I haven't seen that I want to see are things that any film buff would light up at they're like the complete version of the Magnificent Ambersons I mean I dream (laughs) that before I die someone will find it in some apartment in Rio de Janeiro and, and it will be restored and I can see it and then I'll go. I'm happy to go there. Uh, it's it's things like that that that, that, that stand out for me. Um, I mean, I'm sure there are important movies I haven't seen, but 
I, uh, they don't spring to mind straight away. Okay. You've seen Jackass. Yes. I noticed, <laughs> I my, my son lured me into seeing Jackass. He said, Dad, this is amazing. You've got to try it. And he was right. It was. I didn't like it, but it was amazing. <laughs> uh, um, and who do you think is doing really interesting work within the kind of the American mainstream? Do you, do you look at someone like Christopher Nolan thinking that he's Yes, working, I, working within franchise and working within those things. Yeah, I I like a lot of what Nolan's done. I'm a big admirer of Inception. I'm not so keen on the Dark Knight films, but that's just me. Um, I still would put Anderson there. I I like the Coen Brothers very much. Right. I, I I'm a big fan, and I think they've got better and better. Um, it's interesting because the, the book kind of stops short of that generation of films. Well, I. I, I picked a few people like I mean I deal with Scorsese I deal with Tarantino and Eastwood and Woody Allen right. and, but I had to make a selection you know I had to yeah. go for certain people and you're not a fan of Tarantino are you? I loved Pulp Fiction I loved Pulp Fiction but I have not thought that he's lived up to it and we'll see what the new film yeah. is going to be That'll it'll be a, it's, it's an important test I think right. the new film yeah if you've met I mean you've obviously come into contact with uh a lot of the great and good of, of cinema during your during your career. Have, have you been intimidated by by anyone? Is there anyone that's where you're kind of the inner fan? David Thompson has got to come out more than any other person. Oh yeah, yeah. I've been. Uh, I don't know if intimidated is quite the word, but I I think I've been in situations where my judgment was uh, completely smothered <laughs> by the sort of either the celebrity of a person or the way in which I had seen them on screen for so long that it was very difficult to deal with them as a real person. I mean, I spent an evening once with Tuesday Weld, and it was, it was a couple of hours before <laughs> I realized she was a real person. <laughs> um, and yeah, the, the, I mean, some people try to intimidate you. Uh, some people intimidate you not intimidate but overall you just through the state of their life when I met Nicholas Ray he was dying and um, he took a long time dying but but we all do uh, and he was um, he was in such a condition that your your sense of pity overwhelmed everything else you know um, uh, I knew Michael Powell very well, and he could be very intimidating, quite deliberately. Mm -hmm. I mean, he, but he could be very human and touching and close. And he's probably the person in the film business that I knew the best and, and have, have got on with the best. I met, here's an interesting comparison. I met Kirk Douglas, talked to him, and Kirk Douglas is so 100% Kirk that I don't know anything about him. You know, I mean, literally, he is image. He is like himself on a, on a screen. This was before his stroke or anything, when he was still vibrant. I've met Michael Douglas, and Michael Douglas is a human being within 10 seconds. And you enjoy his company, and you, you, you find yourself talking absolutely naturally about him. You know, that's a generational shift. Or maybe it's the fact that Michael grew up with Kirk as his father. And said, I don't want to go that way. <laughs> it's Ragnarok <laughs> and Spartacus. Yeah. Did, um, did, is that maybe a product of what the studio system sort of did to, to stars? Yes. I mean, st the studio system... 
prepared people for glory and fame in remarkable ways. It, it, it taught them how to speak, how to move. It taught them how, which knife and fork to use with yeah. a, a meal. <laughs> uh, it taught them to change the look of their face sometimes, to make their weight steady um, and to behave. And, and if they were going to misbehave, tell the studio about it so the studio could take care of it and mm. hush it up, cover it all up, you know. Uh, these were very manufactured properties. The studio owned these people on seven-year contracts, and it was an investment, and they got a terrific return for it. But they didn't want them to... Uh, step out of line. They didn't want them to die, things like that. Uh, that's all gone now. And, and, you know, someone someone like Lindsay Lohan blunders around. <laughs> She's got advisors. She has an entourage, I'm sure, but she ha she has no sort of long-term contract. No one, no one skilled in the business is looking after her. Therefore, she's going to do dreadful foolish things <laughs> and she's going to be going to become a version of Marilyn Monroe in a certain way and, and and nobody can have great hopes for her life expectancy speaking of Michael Powell was he was he a conduit to Martin Scorsese did because you you discussed yeah. a project with Martin of your own screenplay well it, 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 it was uh, Michael Powell uh, wrote me a letter uh, which took a very long time to reach me. I was in America by the time it reached me. And it was a letter thanking me for the entry on him in the biographical dictionary. And Michael Powell in those days was sort of an outcast. And I wrote back to him and said, is there any chance that you would be interested in coming over to Dartmouth, the place where I was teaching, uh, to talk to students? You know, I thought of just a visit. And it ended up, he was there for a term as filmmaker in residence. And he made a little film with some of our students. In the course of that um, visit, he came to me one Friday and said, is there a way of getting to New York from here? And I said, well, yes, there's a very small plane that goes down and it's quite hair raising, but <laughs> it gets to New York as a rule. And so he went down and he went down to visit Marty. He had seen Marty before, they'd met before, but Marty was editing a film called Raging Bull. And that was where Michael met Thelma Schoonmaker for wow, the first wow. time. And That's down to you, David, essentially. Well, I mean, <laughs> I was a cog in the wheel. And of course they ended ended up married and, and because of that I got to know Scorsese a bit and we had a, a, a time, there was a time when we had a, a film project going together through Disney uh, it never came to pass but uh, it, you know uh, yeah that, that was a very nice time and, and Michael had a tremendous resurgence he, he had he came back he, he wrote his book and he had uh, tribute seasons at the Museum of Modern Art and things like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's wonderful to see Scorsese bringing back. He, Sco Scorsese was so generous to him and and so so helpful to those last years. He really looked after him. Mm. Yeah. Um, fantastic, that's wonderful. Okay, thanks, David. How amazing you know Walter Murch. <laughs> Walter Murch is a genius. He's my idol. I love Walter Murch. He's a great man. <laughs> He's a genius. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
David Thompson there and his book The Big Screen The Story of the Movies and What They Did to Us is out next week from all good and evil bookstores. And now for a very quick burst of Red Dwarf. As you may or may not know, the seminal sci-fi sitcom returned to TV this week in the guise of the older, wiser, and hopefully funnier Red Dwarf 10. We were lucky enough to be joined by Craig Charles, who plays Lister, Chris Barry, who plays Rimmer, and Doug Naylor, the show's co-creator. In this clip, listen now for not one, but two cracking Crichton impressions. Surprisingly enough, one of them comes from our very own James. Unbelievable. Enjoy. Was I there? Yeah, you were. Yeah. Is it? Yeah, around, around. Yeah, send the You know the one. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I got yeah, yeah, yeah. You know the one. I've never seen one before. No one has, but I'm guessing it's a white hole. Hey, I'm not Chris, but I'll try. Hey, look at that. Fact, you do that, what, the other cast, though, don't you? For us. Mix it up. This is radio. Oh, sir. So <laughs> after doing your impersonation of me, sir, I am quite... What's the word, Mr. Lister, sir? <laughs> Sir Katzer, have you anything to say? Ah, six, and my nipples are tingling. Um, is that right? Um, um, ah, Rim, I just want to go. I just don't want to stay here, man, with you. Any of these bad actors? No, what's the point in being here, man? We really didn't need anyone else on, did we? We could have just had you do everyone. Yeah. And then there's Doug. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, no, yeah. Yeah, no. That's funny, yeah. No, that's not funny, yeah, yeah. Norman. A Norman. Oh, yeah, Norman, yeah. Why, why am I in the bloody show now, then? I'm good at about missing that quite an impression, sir. Oh, that's quite good. It's quite good. Quite good. Yes. Yeah. Um, I'm gutted about missing those guys. Uh, yeah, that would have been three in one room. I love the way uh, Chris Barry immediately hears a quite an impression and just whips it out and goes, yeah. boom, yeah. better one, right? No, no, he goes, he goes, <laughs> oh, fine, and does the whole cast just to sort of make <laughs> a point. That was amazing. Yeah. We didn't need anyone else. We could literally have just had him do the whole thing by himself. I was a massive Red Dwarf fan growing up. I once wrote so I. for uh, an English essay, a creative essay, I wrote a 40-page Red Dwarf essay story that just went on and on and on. I had it in about eight weeks late. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was very exciting. I think Rally as well. I, I loved, absolutely loved Red Dwarf. Uh, when I was uh, a teenager just was obsessed with it uh, and I haven't watched it in years and I went back sort of after we spoke to them and, and watched some of the old episodes and it's still really really good I mean season three almost season one or two just looks so dated these days just in terms of budget yeah but some of the lines are but, still uh, good some of the dialogue still good yeah but I think it's a show that didn't really find its footing until series three I yeah. think that's when it actually got really good a series, series three, three to series, series five it's, yeah. it's golden era series six is doable and then seven and eight you could argue the quality goes down a little word's bit word's good there. in this one word is good in this one yeah so I hear ten ten is supposed to be actually pretty exciting looking forward to that one uh, if you want to hear the rest of the Special Red Dwarf podcast uh, and if you don't frankly you're a smeghead then it's available now it's not the only special out this week however uh, today has been randomly decreed to be Global James Bond Day uh, and to celebrate we've recorded a special Bond cast featuring myself Dan Jolin Nick Dissemlian and special guest blogger Neil Alcock aka The Incredible Suit blathering on about 007 while we're also joined by special guests Britt Eklund and Stephen Riley director of the cracking Bond documentary Documentary, everything or nothing that's also available to download now but let's have a bit of Brit talking about non-bond matters namely get Carter and she was talking to me and Phil I have to ask about the the, the, the phone sex scene as well in get Carter because who was on the other end of the line when you were shooting that scene what were you reacting to at that time probably Mike Hodges <laughs> probably uh, it was just a camera and me on the bed and Mike probably got right Action mm-hmm. and I, or maybe a script girl, it certainly wasn't Mike Kane. <laughs> he was, uh, see, I, did, I shot that in, um, in a room in London, mm-hmm. a very seedy room, oh. a hotel room somewhere. 
and um, I was never on location and I was never even near Michael Caine. So, um, so the first time you met Michael Caine was at the... No, no, no. I'd known Michael since the late 60s. Okay. Um, oh, yeah. You know, it, we all sort of knew each other then. You know, Terence Stamp, Michael Caine, myself, Susan Hampshire. We all, you know, um, met up in different clubs, said hello and mm. disappeared. And so, so it wasn't like... We were young then. We weren't yeah. like mm. the people we are today. And Terence Stamp was one of our first podcast guests oh. and he was telling us some of his stories of living with with Michael I can imagine that which was bending our bones as he spoke <laughs> we, were, we were just it's hard to even imagine what it was like in those days yes but, and he lived in, in in the Albany which was right opposite Fordham and Mason's in Piccadilly mm-hmm. and I, rem- I was married to Peter Sellers and mm-hmm. this must be let's say 66-ish, 7-ish. And this is when he was so devilishly handsome that, you know, you almost die just looking at him. And Sellers had a Rolls Royce. Lord Snowden had designed the whole interior and it was a drop head. And in those days, you, you drive to the side entrance of Fort Mason, you know, down on the side of Piccadilly, and you just leave the car there. <laughs> and you just go in and shop. And when I came back from having shopped and I get into the car, there is Terence Stamp leaning on the car, you know, on the side of the car, just watching me getting in. And I'm like, <laughs> but I was married and I, <laughs> I quickly drove all the way home. <laughs> Okay, so we haven't even tackled the week's news yet. Let's hop to it. Uh, what's been happening while I've been away in LA? Hobnobbing with <laughs> an iPad and episodes of, of Louie on Netflix. Uh, Ali, what have you got? Uh, what I've got is one of those stories that always works so well on a podcast, which is the announcement of a trailer arriving. This is where we acted out, isn't it? That's right. Yeah. Um, I'm going to be the Lone Ranger. I'll be wearing a mask. <laughs> Phil, how good is your Native American? <clears throat> anyway, the Lone Ranger trailer has arrived from yep. Gore of Babinski, uh, starring Army Hammer as the Lone Ranger and Johnny Depp as his companion Tonto. Uh, he does in the trailer say his catchphrase, if you want to call it catchphrase, but he calls Lone Ranger Kimo Sabe. <laughs> Uh, which is good. I enjoyed that. But you don't hear Hi-Yo Silver away, which I found quite disappointing. That's a disappointing catchphrase. Hi-Yo Silver away? No, just, you know, Kimusabi. I, mean, I, I like, let's take a look at what you could have won. It's good. <laughs> That's pretty good. What Smithy Ship's doing is good, but it's not right. It's super Smash, lovely great. <laughs> Your money that. is safe. Absolutely. Mm. How have we descended into this? Anyway, I think it's Verbinski's first film after Rango. Yes. Which he won an Oscar for, and he is did. also Western, which also starred Johnny Depp. And a Jim lot- Bowen. And Jim Bowen, of course. Uh, but a lot of people are concentrating on the fact that Johnny Depp's character, Tonto, is made up with this black and white Native American Potawatomi nation makeup. But he also has a bird on his head, which you will notice. It's a blackbird. It's a alive, raven. though, isn't it? It moves. If you look at the stills, at one point it has its mouth open. Another point it kind of bends its head. And uh, in an interview, I think it was with EW, he mentioned, Gorbinski, that the bird eats seed out of Johnny Depp's hand at it, one point. It's alive and or magic. And all dead. It's incredible. It's zombie, a zombie crow. Can well, only hope. What sort of a bird is it, Ali? <laughs> Done a lot of work on this. It's a rubber duck. Oh no, it's a blackbird. It's a raven. Just a bird. Just a standard raven. Yeah, I think so. It's um, just a standard. Could be bird a crow on, on someone's head. Know. It could be a crow. But the main thrust of the uh, trailer is that trains are coming to the Wild West, and there are bad people trying to take over them or harness their power. And there's a great. It's bit. amazing. No one's thought to make a film about that before. No, I know. Mm. But the amazing bit is. Um, <laughs> is 
Tonto hanging from underneath a moving train and just kind of pulling that Johnny Depp face of, huh, well... I'm under a train, so what? Which raises a smile. <laughs> I think a trailer. This is a, yeah, this is a massive, massive movie. Big, and big it's, movie. it's undergone a lot of changes. There was talk of a supernatural element. That mm. still looks like it might be in place. Mm. Did I hear werewolves or something? There's or? a hint of time travel in the trailer. There is? Certainly really? Tom, Tom Wilkinson says something that indicates that the, the MacGuffin, in some way, controls the flow of time. Are you thinking of Back it's to the Future 3? Time. No, 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 that's Prince of Persia. No, but that's the thing, because exactly, oh. Brookhammer's been there before, and I thought maybe you'd avoid that. We're just Absolutely, saving on We props. don't know for sure, we don't know for sure, but there is a line, uh, uh, certainly in the Comic-Con trailer I saw, where he talks about... It does, yeah. There, there's something about the time, time and you've been able to control it, and it all seems a bit, uh, a bit interesting. Are you sure it wasn't just confusing because Jerry Bruckheimer's studio sequence credit is actually as long as the trailer this time no I no. thought that was astonishing the camera flies in it goes in a tunnel it goes under a train it flies out and there's the tree it's uh, it's pretty epic I love it yeah. I'd like to think that he's got 250 or whatever million dollar budget and they just couldn't afford another uh, any more money on a MacGuffin so they just borrowed the one from Prince of Persia <laughs> <laughs> we've just got this one lying around well, no one liked useless. it last time no but one we'll remembers we we'll just polish it Nobody's up a bit there remember. you go it's fine I'm, I'm looking forward to it it looks like a proper western actually it looks like yeah you know, Big time. A lot this of money's been spent on it. A Once upon a time in the West with, with werewolves. I'd, I'd quite like to see that film. I don't know about you. Phil's clearly on board with that. <laughs> I do not want to see that film. You don't want to see that film? No. I'd like one. Well, okay, anyway, but you'd love it if Curious Dummy made it. Anyway, anyway, moving on. Phil, what have you got for us? Um, I've got a story about a film that's get, getting a lot of buzz uh, awards-wise, Beasts of the Southern Wild, which mm-hmm. I think wow people, first of all, in Sundance. And uh, it's... People here have seen it, I think. It's a it's an astonishing film, but the problem that they've got with it at the moment, especially as they're trying to get towards awards season, is that the two leads, um, neither of them were, t- were attached on SAG... Screen Actors Guild contracts yeah. which the Screen Actors Guild is now saying well consequently you're not eligible for our awards and the Screen Actors Guild awards in January are usually kind of a handy precursor to the Oscars so yeah. it doesn't mean that their chances of nomination are gone but they it's not been- a good sign because that's a big part of the Oscar voting block um, they haven't I don't we haven't, they haven't been excluded from, from the Oscars because the Oscars no. can sometimes disqualify people usually in things like the, the, the best song or best score category for the most seemingly arcane reasons sorry you recorded your score on a Tuesday after 4 o'clock you're out that, that sort of thing yes but well, this it, time they it's haven't not been. like that no it's not It's not. It, we're not really into the Oscars territory yet but but it is a SAG issue Screen yeah. Actors Guild I think they they want people on a standard you know contracts um, to make sure they're fairly remunerated now I don't want to say anything this is a story that came out of the Hollywood Reporter I don't want to say anything out of turn but we have the director coming into the podcast next week including one of the leads and one of the leads so we can <laughs> we can sit them down and, and uh, get them to, to explain exactly you know how this all worked it's not a it's not a no-budget movie, this. I think it's a million and a half dollars it cost. And uh, I don't think there's any suggestion that the actors were unfairly treated financially, but the Screen Actors Guild have some fairly strict guidelines and rules on this sort of thing, and they seem to have fallen foul of them. Um, so it's a kind of a watch the space. Hmm. Interesting, that one. Uh, weirdly enough, I was um, interviewing Bruce Kerner, who was the guy that played the desk cop in The Terminator that Arnie says I'll be back to but he was also an executive in charge of production he was basically brought in by the Bonds people to make sure that it was completed on time and he said that Terminator wasn't a, a union picture either yeah. and so the unions kept threatening to sign everyone up yeah. and then take them out of of the picture essentially and uh, until the whip was cracked and they that's right well you forget 
Sorry, you forget that Hollywood is a union unionized yeah. business. I mean, Britt Eklund, when she came in to talk to us, she mentioned that you know she gets her Screen Actors Guild pension and and she still works, but she gets that. I mean, they look after actors, and I think they're not flexible on things like this. Quite clearly, um, Beast of the Southern Wild. It's unfortunate this this particular film because it has you know got some extraordinary performances, and it would be a shame if they weren't recognised. James. Well, as you know, I've not really been around today, as I've been in a horrendous meeting, but I did uh, I did catch the eye of one particular thing when I came in, and I did a bit of a, a comedy-esque uh, uh, sort of double-take, uh, that Jay Chandrasekhar is doing Yogi Bear 2. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was surprising. Who's had, big, who's had the biggest come-down for in terms of <laughs> career prospects? It's hard to say. <laughs> I'm not sure what's more worrying, that, that I was a bit like, oh, this film's being made, or I was looking forward to seeing if the poster was as, you know... Suggestive, <laughs> suggestive as the previous one. Do you, does anyone remember the Yogi Bear poster? Good things there? come in bears. With, yeah, with and it had had Boo Boo staring out, looking a bit <laughs> violated, and Yogi standing behind him with this huge sort of molesty grin on his face. Again, was, thank you for completing that sentence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it, yeah, it was a bit wrong. Uh, Jay uh, Jando Sekarho is, is the guy behind the Broken Lizard. Broken Lizard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm, I like Broken Lizard stuff. I really do. You know, uh, Club Dread, Super Trooper stuff like that. But um, yeah, why? Why? And he also directed the Dukes of Hazard. Well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> taking that into consideration, well, this is probably <laughs> the natural place for him to end up. But yeah, I'm not. I'm not excited about Yogi Bear too. I don't think anyone is, apart from well, Smurfs, too, Ranger, Ranger Smith's well. loving it. But <laughs> but otherwise, uh, Dan Aykroyd, Justin Timberlake, are they back? <laughs> Did you read that far? I didn't. I really didn't. <laughs> I didn't even read the story. I saw the headline. I saw the picture. I just God bless you and all they're selling you. Yeah. Coming up, this week's reviews. Okay, time to turn our gimlet gaze to this week's releases, starting with the return of Liam Neeson as a man with a very particular set of skills. Uh, Brian Mills and his big black coat are back in Taken 2, in which Mills finds himself facing off against the father of one of the many, many crazy Albanians that he slaughtered relentlessly yeah. um, without any discrimination in the first movie. Uh, so, thoughts on this one, because this was... This is a strange one because I really, really liked the first Taken, and I That's was I was excited about this one. And then I heard that um, Olivia Megaton was directing it. Yeah. This is a guy who directed Transporter Three, which is one star franchise horrible. killer. Yeah. yeah, franchise killer, and Columbiana, which is just dull. And I wasn't that excited. And has he delivered the goods? No, it's it's it's. I mean, technically, from a direction point of view, it's it's inept. Really, uh, the action is is very incoherent to the point where you know, not to be a spoiler, but two major fights in it, people die, and you left wondering exactly what killed them. I mean, it's just the camera work is all over the place, and it seems that anyone who's seen Paul Greengrass do quick editing thinks, oh, if we just cut it really fast, it'll look amazing. But quick editing highlights good choreography; it's not a substitute for it. Mm. Um, I didn't think this worked at all, but I, I did like uh, the fact that, as just a steal one of Nick's lines, uh, they did uh, kidnap a very particular set of mills. <laughs> they do the, the story in this one is that Brian and his uh, his ex-wife Lenore they're on the verge of reconciliation in Istanbul and they are taken by Rad Sabergias uh, or Boris the Blade yes um, uh, by his by his goons and then it becomes a, a, a chase movie and I, I like I was kind of with this for a while the fight scenes are hugely annoying and I think it's mainly because the film is quite toothless I think maybe they, they yeah. shot kind of R-rated fights and then they had to cut everything down for a PG-13 so I thought if we just take out almost, let's take out a frame or two from each punch and see what happens but yeah there, there are moments here where you've no idea what's happening with, with the action sequences and we saw a movie the following night yes, I, don't we, I don't think we can say exactly what it is about. yet um, in which the, the choreography was clean mm. you could make out what was going on it was very classic 
fantastically shot and I really really liked that it just highlighted everything that was wrong with this absolutely uh, but I was kind of with some of the, the more outlandish story developments there's a moment where uh, you know Brian is still quite resourceful and uh, he's he's trapped and he has to get Kim his daughter to uh, track him down so he, he does so by Echo location yeah this very responsible father uh, who all through the movie has been like <laughs> implanting GPS chips in his daughter's phone so he can track her down you know he's really worried about her going out in the big white world and uh, he basically tells her to grab a bunch of grenades and go out to Istanbul and throw them so he can track her <laughs> track her by where the sound is I liked moments like that they took this character this larger than life character and, and, and played up to those larger than life elements but for the most part it's a slightly clunky uh, and ridiculous film also we famously or Dan I should say Dan Jalen famously didn't like Taken and gave it a rather negative review in Empire that we don't talk about uh, but his main issue with Taken 1 was he thought it was a little bit racist mm-hmm. um, and I just think that you know, if the first one's message which and I have no problem with this was uh, if you leave America you're going to get kidnapped and you know tortured by foreigners uh, this one that's what you feel if you leave your house yes yeah, that's yeah. very much how I feel when I leave North London um, this one just seemed to be very much a case of that person's foreign kill them uh, and when you're in Istanbul that's a bit of a problem mm. uh, so he just he just shoots everyone he sees because they look a bit foreign and th- there's, there's a point where he does actively just shoot someone who you're not even sure is really a bad person no he just he just sees a, a he guy he sees a guy who's a bit you know foreign looking turns looks at him and he shoots him in the face well it's actually the same guy who's uh, the head of the Brotherhood of the Cruciform Sword in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade and perhaps so that's maybe why he recognised maybe he's not a fan <laughs> <laughs> so. I just didn't get on board even with the outlandish stuff saying it like you did then I, I kind of see what you mean yeah it was kind of fun with the whole echolocation grenade thing but all they had to do was set it in LA where they're from have the wife be taken somewhere and then they could take it anywhere in America and it would still be taken you could have taken too it's the wife not the daughter and you could still have the running punching shooting foreigners thing in America, I didn't see why they took it to Istanbul. I don't see why they made it so kind of, kind of passive and, and kind of claustrophobic when it should be Brian Mills with a gun out there doing it. And for about forty minutes, he doesn't do any of that. No, he doesn't. It, it kind of plays the beats of the first movie too much. So right. the, the first twenty-five minutes or so is quite dull. And uh, his mates turn up, his three oh, mates in the first movie turn up, and there's an, an absurd scene where he, <laughs> he calls them, and they're, up, they're playing at the golf course, and they really couldn't give a damn about their friend who's being shot at in Istanbul. Another thing about Istanbul, though, is, it, you know, I've been there. Um, wow. I, don't know, I don't know if I've mentioned this, but I was at the Champions League final in 2005. <laughs> I don't know if I've mentioned that before. Um, but it's an absolutely beautiful city, I and mean, you don't get any sense of that at all. This is they, they go to one of the, the most beautiful cities on earth, and then they 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 they, they go to dingy Turkish baths, yeah. and they go to you know horrible warehouses and dank cellars, and they spend pretty much the entire movie movie in there. There's a car chase, which doesn't really show off the, the, the show city anything. Well, because you can't cars. make out what's going on. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to leave Dan hanging on this one because yeah, he did he did hate that film a lot, <clears throat> and we did give it one star, famously, infamously. Um, a lot of people would probably, you know, in this room as well, would disagree with that. Yes. We seem to have given this film more stars, despite the fact that we hate it a lot more, which <laughs> it's, is strange. Yeah, it's but, one of those quirks. I was the... just going to say that, in, um, you know, for Dan, I mean, these are the sort of film that you, you may well take against, because it is, you, know, you could argue there's a xenophobic streak mm. to it. You could argue there's a fascist, you know, you watch films like <clears throat> Death Wish or Harry Brown, and the, yeah, where, where there's really no effort to kind of demonstrate who these people are at all beyond the fact they're cannon fodder and if you make them foreign cannon fodder and if you make them foreign cannon fodder from a part of the world that's politically quite complex anyway then suddenly you're upsetting you can be upsetting people I don't like imagine Dan. this is going to be on the Guardian's love film list and and you know I think I don't think we should 
Netflix, you know, please, come on. You, I think some people would react to it in a different way. If you can just see it as a plain as a plain action thing. Mm. I was wondering that having made two hundred and thirty million, expecting it to be straight to DVD, the first film. Mm. Do you see any of that money in this one at all on the screen? I didn't get a sense of this being bigger necessarily. No, not at all. But not they at all. say it is. That's what I found so frustrating. Is if you, in fact, the screening I watched, it began with Liam Neeson to camera saying, "No, you guys be nice. Fox have put a lot of money and a lot of effort into this, and it's going to be bigger, badder, and better. You're going to love it. I'm Liam Neeson. His Good salary, night. His salary is Mike. <laughs> walks out, and says, "Holla, hello, Soho." None of that happened. It is a, a damp screw of a movie. I actually really, really do not like it. Watch the original Taken. Yes. Watch Taken and Commando together in a double bill. And yes, a strange quirk of fate. This is the way things work. We have given Taken 2, which we didn't like as much as Taken. More stars than Taken. But anyway, watch Taken, not Taken 2. Right, moving on. Emma Watson continues her post-Potter career rise with a supporting role in the high school drama Perks of Being a Wallflower, in which Logan Lerman moves to new school and all sorts of complications in Rise. Thoughts on this one? Ali, you, uh, you interviewed... Ms. Watson for this yes I did and it was it was good fun she is a lovely person she showed me how she did some of the dance moves within the film she has this great dance with her co-star Ezra Miller who plays an outlandish but very friendly lovable chap so he's not movie. Kevin again he's not <laughs> Kevin he's yeah, not basically Kevin. it's the same guy who played Kevin in we need to talk about Kevin just in case you're wondering anyway so they have this weird dance and she went through it she has to punch herself on the head at one point um, anyway this movie is actually a really pretty down to earth coming of age movie a high school coming of age movie which centres around Charlie who is a very shy wallflower as you might have guessed uh, who goes to this new school has no one to speak to the one person who actually shows any sort of sign of knowing he's alive is this guy called um, Patrick Ezra Miller and his stepsister who's called Sam Mm -hmm. Emma Watson buddies up with them and um, kind of brings him out of his shell there's a kind of a dark story behind it all as to why he's so shy and why he hasn't kind of become himself yet but it's a very sweet very heartfelt very enjoyable film I wonder why more movies aren't made like this because so much of the of Hollywood is aiming at teenagers with kind of fantasy or sci-fi or kind of these franchise things and this one is just kind of real it's interesting though because it, it's a slightly unconventional <clears throat> for a coming of age sort of high school movie you know it's got proms it's got all of those familiar touchstones but it tackles them very differently and like you say it has a really sort of dark undercurrent to mm. it that you don't really expect going in I think also what works for this is while it's a high school film that obviously appeals to that age group it's grounded in the sort of 90s yeah. you know very sort of musically but I mean that's when it's set so for those of us who were that age back then <laughs> um you know, it, it resonates with us as well. So it's actually it's, it's very broadly appealing. Percy Jackson and Hermione in the same thing with Kevin together. Uh, yes, yeah, it's all the big teen idols. Yeah, that's a lot of power and magic. It's like the universal monsters of, of, of teen <laughs> movies in, in many ways, isn't it? Good soundtrack, I gather. Yes, it's got a little bit of. What David was your Bowie. highlight? Uh, well, yeah, Heroes is the lead song for it, uh, which is hard not to adore. Mm. Um, I like it just generally because it doesn't talk down to teenagers and I hate movies that do that so yeah this is four stars fantastic and uh, you know it's it's aimed at the socially awkward I presume so it's it should well, appeal James agrees with me I think it's pretty yes, broad that's why I liked it yeah um, let's face it yes. we're film journalists so we say, were socially awkward did you just say it's aimed at the socially awkward <laughs> yeah cinema is aimed at well, socially not awkward a, that's not a demographic no I think it would, I, it re- perhaps it is it resonates, it resonates with, the, yeah, with yeah. the socially awkward and those who enjoy I was, you know, I was making mixtapes I was a real wallflower I was very socially awkward growing up in fact when I was in Istanbul in 2005 oh, for the chapter 
growing up in 2005. <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm just saying I was on my own and I was quite shy. Uh, I, I just went to Crowbar at Istanbul back in there. Anyway. No, um, really, no shit. <laughs> Were you wearing that hat? I wasn't wearing that hat. Team, that G- have team GB, Team GB. Uh, okay, the next film is one I've already mentioned. It's the Bond documentary, Everything or Nothing, which charts the screen history of 007 via a series of fascinating talking head interviews with the likes of Pierce Brosnan, George Lazenby, Roger Moore, all the Bonds except Sir Sean. And amazingly, Bill Clinton pops up in this one as well. Um, I absolutely love this. What do you, what do you guys think? Well, Phil and I interviewed the director, Stephen, um, obviously. And, yeah, I was kind of blown away by how much of a story there is behind the making of not just Bond, but of Eon, the company that made Bond. You won't just be told, oh, there was this one time and it's an amusing story, I fell over and said, blah, blah, blah. It's a really in-depth, involving story of these two people who managed to get the rights to um, Ian Fleming's work and, and, and set about making a kind of a movie empire around one character. It's great. I'd never. I, you see all of these Bond documentaries that just kind of tie together bits of footage and people talking about the the, the film. This is the story that I haven't seen before, really, of of uh, Harry Saltzman and, and Cubby Broccoli, yeah. and and it starts with Fleming. And there's some stuff in it that's just insane. I mean, like the idea. I had no idea that Fleming was this. You know, he had this kind of shady. They're making a film about it with Duncan Jones, obviously. But there's. Um, the shady wartime past that spilled into this guy but he was just quite reflective of Ian Fleming's dark side it started with quite a dark character depression and alcoholism he was depressed but yeah, he, was he was also was... a bit of a player and yeah. there's, I'm one of his exes they interview and she said Ian came up to me for the first time and he looked at me and he went are you a lesbian? <laughs> that was in those days that was an acceptable opening gambit I think it was are you a lesbian because I'm going to kiss you well, I don't know what, I don't know where he was going with it to be honest I think it played uh, into yeah. uh, into probably Pussy Girls Flying Circus in some strange way um, strange that Bond has never used that on screen yeah, <laughs> isn't it though are you a lesbian <laughs> Would have been interesting. Um, the only big glaring absence, I guess, is Sean Connery. It is Sean Connery, and you can kind of see why. I mean, he's because he had a massive falling out with the producers, and the film says that they, they did patch it up. I think it was between himself and Harry Saltzman, um, and they did patch it up when, when Saltzman was on his deathbed. But perhaps there's still some bad blood there that he didn't want to really take part, which is a shame because you have the other Bonds, and they're incredibly candid. I mean, Lazenby is so forthcoming about how he essentially screwed up the role of a lifetime he he worked incredibly hard he's incredibly good about how he worked and how he really wanted Bond and how he studied relentlessly he hadn't acted before in his life but somehow he thought this was a role he could play and then he fell in with a bad lot who basically influenced him and he became quite bohemian and so turned up at the premiere of Honor Majesty's Secret Service with long hair and a beard and Salzman and Broccoli went well we're not having that you're out son and Dalton's really candid and Brosnan's very very good in the moment he was essentially let go as mm-hmm. Bond um, and it's just I thought it might be a bit of a whitewash job especially given that it's named after Eon the company that made Bond but it's got some incredible moments it doesn't whitewash Cubby Broccoli even though Barbara Broccoli who's his daughter and the current producer of the Bond films is in there and there's an incredibly touching moment when she talks about her father and his legacy and you know how he you know may not have always been the greatest parent but he was you know a good filmmaker just really really touching uh, film and also what it, what it did for me in just 97 minutes and it, it could have been a lot longer for me I would have happily watched a three hour cut of this movie was rekindled my enthusiasm for Bond I said that in the uh, on, on the Bond cast but my enthusiasm had been killed by the Bondathon I did a few years ago I saw this movie and I immediately went home and watched Casino Royale 
and I would happily watch uh, uh, many other Bonds as a result of this because because it it chooses the clips brilliantly. It's a very very wittily done documentary. It has a a line from a Bond or a glance that pertains to every situation. Uh, so someone will say something, and then they'll have a clip that will reference what, well, what they yeah, just said. They it's very very archly done. Time gets you know. Oh my God, they're running out of time. Are they going to get the rights in time? And it's double o nine, double o eight, double o. Yeah, it's very very well edited and yeah, uh, it's as well put together. So that's Everything or Nothing, which is fantastic. Go and check it out, uh, especially today, Friday, Global James Bond Day, if you, if you do that dress up in a tuxedo and go and see it. The last big review this week is of Liberal Arts, which is a college campus rom-com in which Josh Radner, uh, yep, him out of How I Met Your Mother, uh, he writes, directs and stars as an older college tutor who gets involved with Elizabeth Olsen's student, younger student. Phil? It's not really got much common. It, it's an indie film, by Josh Radner, admissions tutor. He's moved away from his old alma mater. It's a world that, if you've seen Damsels in Distress this year, it's kind of like the anti-animal house. It's back in a <laughs> small um, liberal arts college in America. It's a world that, I mean, I'm, you know, if you went to university, you can relate to certain aspects of it, but it's very much an American, a very strong sense of place. Mm. He goes back to visit um, his old his old professor that he has a... Um, uh, a strong relationship with still a strong bond um, in Richard Jenkins who's really really good in this as usual and uh, along the way on this weekend he meets Elizabeth Olsen um, goes out for lunch with her parents and Richard Jenkins and they have this kind of spark and they talk and it's a kind of before sunset type of platonic thing that swells into something a bit more but she's 21 and he's in his mid-30s and he's a bit lost in his life um, the good things about this film, Elizabeth Olsen again, she's great. I think at the moment, you know, Martha Marcy May Marlene, she was terrific. She's just a very talented actress and she's good in this as well. Um, Josh Radner as well. It's very much his film. He directed it. He stars in it. It's very much from his character's point of view. And it's got an authenticity to it as a result of that. But people may find that a little slanted towards a guy that's not always the most sympathetic character I suppose um, but the sparks are there and it's kind of one of those films where you know it, it tips towards inappropriate their relationship and okay. I think that's the thing that he sort of struggles with as a character so the, the, the films that come to mind when I, when I hear this are Beautiful Girls Ted Demi's Beautiful Girls and Garden State yeah I think actually Garden State is not a bad touch point for this um, you know the central character is at a slightly different place in his life he's slightly older so he's in his 30s and he just feels a bit adrift starts off with a scene where he goes out he's in New York and he's just taking his washing to the local laundromat and he goes to put some coins in a machine and he turns around and someone's nicked all his clothes um, so he's that kind of guy he's a bit of a you know extremely well educated um, intelligent cultured schlep I suppose yeah. a little bit he's trying to find himself and he you know it's a character piece and it's got a lot of a lot of good qualities in it we gave it four stars fantastic and just very very quickly what is it about that show what's in the water in that show how I met your mother I mean everyone's got a movie career of some kind going from that one interesting um, also out this week is the Ethan Hawke horror Sinister to which we gave three stars there's uh, Whitney Houston's last movie the musical Sparkle which also garnered three stars and she was very good in it uh, and the Noel Clark comedy The Knot which tries to be the British hangover but in getting just two stars is rather closer to being the British hangover part two uh, and that is it for this week's pod 
which James is happy about because he's got to run out the door because uh, he's running late. Join us next week for more formulated fun when we'll be joined by two duos, Ruby Sparks directors Valerie Farris and Jonathan Dayton and Pusher producer and star Nicholas Winding Refn and Richard Coyle. One's a producer, one's a star. Until then, it is goodbye from James. I've already heard goodbye from James. See you next week, sir. Uh, goodbye from Ali. Bye then. Oh, thanks, bye. Uh, and goodbye from Phil. I've got some box sets to get through, so I'll be heading off now. <laughs> bye. <laughs> Transformers box sets. That's correct. <laughs> and of course, goodbye for me. I'm going home now to sleep for a year or a week. See you next week. <laughs>